I'm happy to be here, happy to be opening the Bible again for all of us. Jesus is our living hope, and we're going to learn about Jesus from a familiar passage to you, I'm sure. It is the passage that documents the miracle of Christ walking on the water. And uh, I'm hoping that this passage isn't something that you just treat as a Sunday school lesson that you've heard this miracle before and what more can I learn? But as I look at the text, I hope what happened to me happens to you and you see the point of what Matthew is making about Christ. He is our king. And the whole theme of Matthew from the beginning of our exposition of this great gospel has been to declare that Jesus Christ is king and that we need a king. And we're going to see him in a new and clear way. And the way that the apostles responded to Jesus' lordship is not without some sort of ups and downs. And we can relate to all of it. And it all relates to us. Who in here doesn't need their faith bolstered? Who in here doesn't need a lift in terms of a stronger faith in the lordship of Christ? We all do. We all do. And this text is about that, is about finding new ways down in yielded submission so that we can have new heights up in faith and a strengthened faith in our walk with the Lord. Um, we've been learning from this narrative as the way that Matthew unfolds it, that Jesus has been in Capernaum. He's been preaching the, the parables and the crowds were um, being both compelled and judged through that dividing line of would they believe it or not in terms of the kingdom of God are they in or are they out? And we work through that. And then we find that Jesus, at verse 13 of Matthew 14, is entering into a phase of retreat. He's going into modes of retreat where he needs some time away with the Lord, his Father, to reflect, to refresh. His relationship as the Son of God is uh, one that is a model to us as he relates to his Father. Like he does, we need to do. And so Jesus is shifting gears in verse 13 to go into a boat into um, a place of desolation. He's moving across the top of the Sea of Galilee from the fishing town of Capernaum and those fishing villages over to um, a desert spot that's called Bethsaida. It's Bethsaida Julius. And it's that eastern side where he goes to kind of commune with his Father, but at this point, what we found in last time's teaching, the crowds that were with Jesus on one side did a big 5K run across the top um, through the mountain terrain, across the top of the Sea of Galilee to meet him on the other side. So he was going to a desolate place to get away from people, and guess what? His retreat on the boat was short-lived in terms of isolation. Suddenly, he's back in ministry. He was healing the people. 5,000 men, which probably populated in families to 15,000, maybe 20,000 people, doing the ministry with husbands, wives, men, um, women, children, and his disciples were there right there with him. I want to make the case that as we look at the text in the way that it unfolds, that Jesus was still on retreat. Jesus, instead of immediately disbanding the crowds, 
decided to join and join himself to them like he's at a conference. We're going we're gonna to not send you away after the healing time. I'm not going to just immediately isolate myself. Let's have food together. Oh, but there's no food. The disciples are saying, we've got to send them back to their hotels if we're going to keep this thing going. And Jesus says, no, I'm the bread of life. Let's stay together. And he miraculously multiplies fishes and loaves to the people, feeding upwards to fifteen to 20,000 people there in a miraculous way to make the point that he is their retreat. He is the bread of life. And he is the provider. And we need to see these miracle moments and these decisions in principle as what we need to live by, saying, Jesus, you are our bread of life. You are our provider and provision. This leads us all to verse 22, where Jesus is still on retreat. Listen as I read. It says, immediately he had made or he made the disciples get into the boat And go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So Jesus was going to still have his retreat. I mean, he was having different modes of it, different phases of it. But he wanted isolated time with his heavenly father. The only way he was going to do it was at that point to force his 12 apostles onto a boat. It says he made them go onto the boat, if you see that language, saying, you need to go back across to the other side. I'll meet you there, but get into the boat. You go out there, I'm going up there. And to the crowds, he dismissed them. He disbanded them. How did he do that? Just being left there by himself. Well, he is the son of God, so he pulled it off. One way or the other, in humility or in a thunderclap of, hey, you need to leave, I'm not sure. He disbands the crowds, and they listen to him. They leave. It's repeated here in the language. The end of verse 22, he dismissed the crowds. And then verse 23, and after he dismissed the crowds. This was a big point. They needed to go. Jesus needed to be deliberate to get away at this time, and that's what he was doing. What we're looking at here, though, is a new phase of retreat where not only is he getting away to be with God, he is God, but to get away with his heavenly father, he also is looking for a way to isolate his 12 apostles to strengthen their faith. Oftentimes when we go into modes of retreat, it's, it is a temptation, and I mean that literally, a sinful temptation to let our guard down, but not fill, it, fill in. When you let your guard down, you need to fill up your heart at the same time. If you just let down and feed on the world, it's a disaster. You let down and then fill up with scripture, with a deliberate prayer time, a deliberate exercise of faith in the Lord, and that's how you go on retreat. But there's another mistake that can take place. When you go on retreat, especially when you isolate, you can try to disengage from the needs of those around you. His people, his 12, needed coaching. They needed mentoring. And what we're seeing is Jesus is in a mode of retreat, but he's also in a mode of mentoring. It's putting in so you can give out. This is the sweet spot of the Christian life. You need to fill up so that you can give out. I think there's an error in Christian sanctification that says that the ultimate end 
of uh, spirituality and communion with God is to give glory to God in terms of trying to find some zenith experience that is up here and then, oh, and then you get away from God and it goes back down here and, oh, you build it back up and, oh, I'm good again and, oh, I'm back down. That's no way to live spiritually. Really, the Christian life is both vertical and horizontal all the time. X marks the spot. I mean, just vertical, I know that's not a true X, but vertical and horizontal. It's perpendicular, I get it. All right, but all that to say, you, you, you fill up with the Lord, and then you feed others around you. I was just away on a retreat. Pete and I and Brian Laker went down to a conference, and on the way back in the airport, you know, I was buying a few last-minute gifts for my kids. Uh, you guys do that sometimes, little airport stuff. And, and this young lady was there, and I could tell she was from another part of the world. And I asked her, I said, where are you, where are you from? And she said, Afghanistan. And she had her, you know, Afghanistan headdress on and things. And she was just a very nice person and being, you know, affable. And I I could tell probably a lot of people don't just talk to her. And so I had a little time and I was talking to her and I said, well, how long have you been here? She said, nine months. And then I I had that moment in my heart. And I, I know that you experience this where you're thinking, the Lord wants me to say something about him right now. He does. And I, I had been filled up with the truth. I'd been studying for this message and, you know, at conference on retreat, and I thought, I need to give out. And so I just began to explain to her. I said, you know, I'm sure in Afghanistan, the dominant religion is Islam and the Quran, and you're probably familiar with that. Are you familiar at all with the Bible and with the Lord Jesus? And I just ha- I said, I just happen to be one of those guys who opens the Bible and preaches. That's what I just normally do. And she blushed a little bit and said she had read some in Genesis as to what happened with the Jews and the separation with those who follow into Islam and the Arab region. She said, I didn't like that very much. I said, but yet you might not like that, but have you met Jesus yet? Because he'll clarify everything and you can know him personally. And I just started talking to her that way. And you don't have to, I didn't know how to make a bridge into talking about the Lord. I said, the reason I'm talking to you, the reason I'm happy and have a smile on my face is because I've read the Bible and I've met the Lord and the Lord has met me. And I, I talked to him and he talks to my heart and, and to me. And I said, you should seek out a way to understand God's word that way. And then the conversation's over. And the Lord will pick up where I left off with someone else. There'll be other seeds and that's the way he works. But retreat is so satisfying when you go up, but then you also go out. I just want to encourage you. That's what Jesus is modeling here. He goes up and then he goes out to his few. He wants those disciples to be mentored. How do you How do you fill up, first and foremost, I just want to mention this, retreating is so important, not just because we just said we're having the women's retreat, then we have a men's retreat, but this is a good infomercial for that. You should sign up and go. Um, But you you do it with a, a deliberate decision. You say, I need to get away with God. I was, and it doesn't have to be just in total people isolation. Some people need that. They want to shut the door, put the noise canceling headphones on. It was funny. I got to share this story. So, so Pete and I are on the plane, Pastor Pete over here, and we're coming back. And uh, he, I had gotten on the plane before him, so I'm seated on the aisle, and he's stuffed in the middle. But there was this lady, and she was a real talker. And, oh, she's going, and we're exhausted. We're at the end of the week, and I know Pete's not one to talk. And she's just talking, talking, talking. And she said, I'm going to go to sleep. Like, as soon as the plane takes off, I will be. And she did. She said, I will be out. I know me. That's what I'm going to do. 
but she was just like, like voice dominant in the plane, like going off. And I knew Pete would just be going, oh no. So I'm seeing him coming and I say, start talking to Pete. He's from Georgia. And just, just say, I'm going to talk to you the whole time. <laughs> and so Pete sits down and it's a really, you know, with his evangelistic heart, he just sits there and he didn't know I was putting him on, but he knew she was going to talk. So he just takes those noise canceling headphones and puts them right on and closes down. And then I told him the joke and we laughed. All that to say... That's not in the notes, but that's for free. That's just, uh, that's what it comes to when I come on retreat and come back. I'm a little bit more freed up. But I like to, I like to whether I'm crammed in coach or in a, in a coffee shop, sometimes I got to get out into noise to be able to bring my mind to focus. And sometimes it is get away. I just want to give you some options in terms of your own personality. But I do want you to see that Jesus climbed a mountain so that then he could send down true mentoring discipleship. He was presenting, this is kind of, why do you go on retreat? Why did Jesus go on retreat? Well, he went first and foremost to get away with the father. That was point one from last week. And then point two this week in the big picture outline, he's presenting opportunities to mentor. He's presenting, he's presenting opportunities to mentor. He's setting the table for mentoring. It's verses 22 through 33. This is what it's about. This is Jesus mentoring ministry to his disciples. It was said that he put them on the boat, and this one theologian said he, he basically made a little church out on the water. There were a little church out there, and he was going to come to them and help them out. So point one, he sends them on their own. That's kind of letter A, sends them on their own. What does Jesus do in his mentoring ministry? He sends them out on their own. He wastes no time in doing this. You see this, verse 22, again, immediately. That's a word that's going to be repeated over and over. So Jesus knew what he was going to do. He disbanded the crowd, and he sent them out on their own. A lot of parents are afraid to send their kids out on their own, on a walk in a neighborhood, out where they can skin their knees. They're afraid to put their kids on a full-contact sports team. They're uh, afraid to try things. Perhaps a kid wants to um, be employed under in a secular environment, but sometimes you need to let your kids go outside their comfort zone to, so as not to stunt their growth. You want them to grow. And so Jesus puts these disciples out there in the water. What's going to be a dangerous place. They're going four miles, by the way, back across the top of the Sea of Galilee. They're going to a place called Bethsaida, which it's Bethsaida Julius on the, um, the east side and back on the west side under Capernaum is Bethsaida means fish house. It's just a common name. And that was another town called Fish House or Bethsaida that they were going back to. Just so you don't get mixed up. If you read Mark, I thought he was going Bethsaida this way in Matthew. And now Bethsaida and Mark this way. It's just two towns with the same name. Why did he do that? Why did he force them in? John six fifteen gives a little bit of a clue about why he did this. Because once Jesus performed the miracle to the 5,000, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 20,000 that were there... It says that uh, they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him a king. They wanted to crown him king. They wanted to mix politics with religion. (laughs) And that can be a very dangerous thing to do. As good citizens, as good Christian citizens, we need to vote. We need to be involved. We need to see things for what they are in terms of what's going right, what's going wrong, and uh, have a Christian witness through that and do our civil duty. 
But as Christian citizens, we have to see that Jesus is Lord over all kingdoms that rise and fall, those that are corrupt and those that are um, more godly. And, and so when they, the crowds wanted to force Jesus to be their political leader in that moment because he had gained their respect with that miracle, Jesus disbanded the crowds. That's what John 6, that's John's view on this. And I think the disciples were being spared from that as well. Don't be influenced by them. I want to show you a higher lordship moment than me just being the new president. Okay, well, how does he do this? Um, Point B is he leads by example. He leads by example. So first, he sends them away. Secondly, he leads by example. How does he do that? By climbing a mountain. He climbs into the presence of God. Now, you don't have to go out into nature or go up on a mountaintop to pray, but it might be a recommended thing to do. It's good to get outside. There are all kinds of, uh, you know, nods toward this, both in Jesus' ministry or in terms of the creation declaring the glory of God, the invisible attributes, putting God on display. That's what Jesus models for us. He was modeling this for the disciples as well. He's climbing his way up, I think, to the top of the mountain to get with God. That's his version of isolation. And he's in the presence of God. You're in the presence of God where you're seated right now in the crowd inside. So I don't mean to hyper-spiritualize that, but I don't want to miss the example of him being deliberate to do this. And I think a lot of times our prayer lives are stunted because we don't make a decision to get off and get with God, to get away and get with God. Whether you need to put the noise-canceling headphones on and sit in Starbucks or wherever and get with God or go on a prayer walk or whatever you need to do, a long drive, get with, make a decision to get with God where you can be out loud with God. A lot of people are talking out loud on Bluetooth, so it's not weird anymore, but just to do it in public, but maybe you have to do it in private. Share your heart with God. That's what Jesus is modeling. This is leadership. This is mentorship. As they, the disciples would have known, that's what he was doing. And he's there at evening hour. Now, we had mentioned evening before because at evening, Jesus was uh, answering the food need of the crowd that was hungry. This is second evening. It's not a nod toward the Lord of the Rings like second breakfast, but this is that Jewish mindset kind of where you had first evening that's pre-dinner and then second evening that's pre-bedtime, that six to eight o'clock hour. And that's when Jesus is ascended in prayer. It's evening time. That's what verse 23, when evening came, he was there alone. He was there by himself to pray And he was there alone. This is Jesus on retreat, praying. It's what he's doing. Now, one thing that's interesting to me is the distance that's shown here between where Jesus was and where the disciples were. If you look at verse 24, it says, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. So there's some distance here. Jesus is up there and they're out there. Is Jesus connected to what's going on to them? I think absolutely. It's a fair case could be made that Jesus was interceding for them, praying for them, because Jesus' prayer meeting is going on all night long. 
nothing's going to happen in terms of Jesus' rescue until the last watch of the night. It's the fourth watch, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So Jesus is there through watch number one, 6 to 9, watch number two, 9 to 12, watch number three, 12 to 3 in the morning. Jesus is part of an all-night prayer time with his father and undoubtedly is praying for his ones that he cares for, especially that he wants their faith to grow. And so he's up there. And though he's distanced himself from them, he's near to them at the same time. So Jesus is in prayer and he is our example. He sends the apostles out on their own. Secondly, he leads by example. And then thirdly here, point C, he allows circumstances to become extreme. What happens? Well, The weather started getting rough. (laughs) That's Gilligan's Island, right? The tiny ship was going to be lost. It says, uh, it it was the boat by this time was a long way from the land, verse 24, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. Um, one translation from the Mark's account says that the pressing, of, the pressing of the oars were against the wind. I mean, the sail was down and the ship was breaking apart. The disciples on the boat, maybe they were saying, I can't believe this is happening again. Because you remember they were in the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was in the hull of the boat. At least at that point, they could go to Jesus and say, Jesus, why do we perish? Why are you letting this happening happen to us? Save us, Lord. Well, Jesus is up on the mountain and they're just out there rocking and rolling and things are falling apart. I've been, as I've mentioned before, out on the Cook Inlet, uh, which is a sort of a crazy, stupid thing to do. But an unnamed other church member and I went out and we surfed the boar tide, um, anonymous. And, um, you know, but we went out there and what we didn't, we knew how to get on the wave, but we didn't know how to get off the wave. So once we got off the wave, instead of, having ridden it to the shore, you, if you're out in the middle, suddenly the currents come and the bathtub fills back up. And it's, you know, it's the largest tidal differential of 30 feet next to the Bay of Fundy. So it's kind of a really um, interesting way to die. No, I mean, to put yourself in an adventure. And so we're out there and we were fine. Um, We were fine. I mean, people later said they drove by and saw us out there kind of in the middle and thought about calling the Coast Guard, but we were fine. It was not a big deal. And so, but I've actually since seen people do it the right way. And my son and I watched and like guys, they ride it in and they ride it to the, to the shore. But one guy that was part of that party of riders was on an outlier spot and he looked pretty well-equipped, ready to go, but he kind of missed the way in and suddenly he's down river whatever you say, down inlet, and and the currents are strong. So you don't mess around with currents. And these apostles, these seafaring apostles were in the current and the waves were beating them down. And it was strong. The, the, the word for beating here, which is uh, verse 24, beaten by the waves is used in apocalyptic settings, Revelation 20, or 12.2 and 14.10. Um, the idea of fire and brimstone dynamic or labor pains. I mean, this was, they were in great travail, a sudden trial. It's interesting to think that the Lord actually sends storms into your life to grow you. Watch this. The Lord puts you in situations where you can't help yourself by your own normal and natural means. Can't do anything. I'm out here. The boat's breaking apart. 
Things are not going to get better apart from the Lord's intervention. And that's exactly where God puts us so that we will grow. It's kind of terrifying if you think about it. He literally puts you out of the nest and you got to flap your wings. Which, in this case, isn't human effort, but it's exercising um, a, a, a lack of self-saving. It's, 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 a, it's the oddest thing in the world. You, you want to grab handholds because you're falling, and the best thing that you can do is say, I can't save myself, Lord help. And that posture, that Lord help, Lord save me posture is right where God wants your heart to be. He wants to land it right there and just stick you, stick you right there. And that's how you grow. But until you're there, you're not growing like he wants you to grow. He just wants to get you where you, you can't, you don't have a human handhold. It is complete lack of self-reliance. That's where he wants. That's, that's faith. That's what it means to believe. That's why faith is not a work because it is the opposite of trying to save or help yourself. You are relinquishing that and you're, you're saying, Lord, help. God disciplines the ones he loves. We know that from Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines the children of God. And I believe that is sowing and reaping where we sin and he chides us for it. But I also think there's a sense in which there is a fatherly discipline upon us just to grow us. It's James 1, 1 and 2. It's the, it's the trials that come upon us and the pressure that's on us. And it's the tested genuineness of our faith that endures under that trial that in the refiner's fire becomes more pure and stronger through being in some trouble. He disciplines us to grow us, and it's comforting to know that. All right, well, let's look at the, the fourth point. So he sends, us, sends the apostles out of town, out on their own, I should say, leads by example, going up the mountain to pray. He allows circumstances to become extreme. And then letter D, we're thankful for this. He comes to our rescue. This is verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. It's the fourth watch. We already mentioned that this means it was the end of the night. He had let them struggle all night long, hours struggling to survive. survive. And Jesus though he wasn't in the boat with them, was in his heart interceding for them, I believe. Because at that point where they were at the the end of themselves, they'd come to the end of themselves, they realized there was no way out, there was no way to save themselves, they weren't gonna paddle out, they weren't gonna survive. That's when Jesus says, enough. I'm gonna lift my head from prayer. I'm gonna look out under the, the moonlit sky Science, science would say that he was able to see from that vantage point of that mountain, see that boat in distress with his physical eyes. And he says, enough, I'm going to go to them right now. And Jesus had promised he was going to meet them on the other side in another text, but Jesus is walking to them. It's time to help my friends. He came to them to meet their need. And he did so walking on the sea. Now, what does that mean for Jesus to walk on the sea? I think people um, 
they extrapolate from this too much. They, they try to think it through on a scientific molecular level. They, or they make it sort of mystical in a way where there's like thunder and lightning under Jesus' feet or some extraordinary vision or, you know, um, light from heaven coming down. You know what it looked like for Jesus to walk on the water? It just looked like for him to walk on the water. He just walked on the water. Is that any less miraculous? No, I think it's more miraculous. It's, it's Jesus is operating within the elements and he is supernaturally dominant over them. It's to show Jesus' dominant nature. He is creator and the creation yields to the creator. Jesus wants to decide to walk on his creation in that way. He can do it. He can make the decision to do it. I can just walk on the water. And as he walks, the water yields. That's the point. It's a miracle. For people to, I read, you know, John Calvin on this. One time in his institutes, he, was, he just repeated it over hundreds and hundreds of pages. He would always say, look, to go any farther than scripture at this point is unprofitable. It's like trying to diagnose how many angels there really are on the tip of a pinhead. It's just dumb to do. It's, it's unhelpful. It can even be harmful to you spiritually to do that. Just go with the text. He walked on the water. It, the water for him is yielded. And so he's able to plant feet on the water and just walk across it. In the classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Alfred Edersheim said it this way. He said, all the energies must have been engaged to keep the boat's head toward the shore. Even so, it seemed as if they could make no progress when all at once in the track that lay behind them, a figure appeared as it passed onwards over the water, seemingly upborne by the waves as they rose, not disappearing as they fell, but carried on as they rolled. The silvery moon laid upon the trembling waters the shadows of that form as it moved long and dark on, that, on their track. So Jesus is walking on something that's unsolid. He's Lord over creation. Colossians 1, 15 and 16, he's the firstborn of all creation. He owns it all. He's like, he's like the firstborn in a family. I inherit it all. It's all mine. Why? For all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I like the translation in the New American Standard. All things are created by him and for him. I made it so it reflects glory back to me. It all yields to him. That's what he's doing when he's walking on the water. He's not just trying to blow the apostles' minds. Another um, context says in Mark that Jesus' intent when he walked on the water was just to walk on by. Just to walk on by. This is just the mode of transportation that he's taking because he's king and he's taking a kingly stride across the Sea of Galilee. It was an earlier intent in his heart. He's the dominant king of kings. But in verse 26, with the disciples freaking out, Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach them what they need to know. It's a mentoring opportunity that opens up. Um, Jesus is the great coach and these are his athletes and he sees the opportunity to seize on the moment and teach them something that they need to know. The disciples saw him walking on the sea and they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. They're like seafaring um, mariners at this point looking out and they're seeing phantoms, you know, out there on the water and they're saying, this is a phantom. 
And they cried out in fear. That word cry out is the word that can be translated shriek. They're shrieking. They're, they're losing it. They were undoubtedly losing it over the ship is going down, right? They're scared of the elements. Suddenly they're scared of the supernatural. They're the nine-year-old boy who's trying to make it across the house in the shadows, not during the day, but at night when things get dark and scary. During the day, it's no problem. Go across the, go to the kitchen, go to the front door, go to the bathroom, whatever. Oh, but it's midnight where you can hear the clock ticking in the background and you walk out in the shadows and suddenly there's a physical realm and to that little boy's mind, as with all of us, there is a spiritual realm. There are two realms. Everybody knows it. People know it. They feel it. They think about it. I'm sure there are people who are self-proclaimed naturalists, but there's eternity in our hearts. We're created beings, physically created beings, but we all have a soul. We have a soul that from the point that we are born then becomes eternal because once the body stops, the soul keeps going. It's going one of two places. And a little boy knows that. So they're walking along and they're wondering what's lurking behind that shadow? What's creaking behind that door? Am I going to make it to the bathroom alive or not? Right? And you start to run. You say, oh, that's just weird. Yeah, well, you probably remember moments where you were going up the stairs about halfway in the dark and you start to move a little bit quickly. Or you don't hang your head off, your hand off the bed at night when you sleep, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But people have that in their minds. And that's what they were doing. Mark six forty eight. he meant to pass them by. But whether that was his original intent or not, he is stopping here to teach them a lesson. He's shifting their focus onto him. J.C. Ryle said this about the idea of people believing in the spiritual realm. Uh, the people believe in extraterrestrials. I mean, um, an unnamed pastor who's sitting over here has uh, gotten me into watching Ancient Aliens recently on the History Channel. And, and it's an interesting motivation for that, um, that mindless drivel uh, is that there are professors that are trying to solve the unseen realm. And it's interesting to try to hear them solve it. You know, are there extraterrestrials? What happened? Where did the pyramids come from? How does this tie in with biblical revelation? That's all interesting, but really it's just fascinating more than anything else because people care about where we came from, what's happening, and is there extraterrestrials out there? Well, there are angels and there are demons, and so there are extraterrestrials, but they're documented for us in the Bible. We know what's happening at a level. But J.C. Ryle said it this way, the number of counterfeit visions people claim prove the reality of the unseen realm. Why? Like a counterfeit coin proves that there is genuine currency. I mean, all the fakery where people fake themselves out about visions and phantoms um, proves that there really is something real out there going on. They cried out in fear, though, it says in verse 26. And here's Jesus' response. Look at verse 27. It says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. That word immediately is repeated throughout this text. Verse 22, immediately Jesus put the disciples in the boat. He disbanded the crowd. Here, immediately Jesus is speaking. After all that chaos all night long and Jesus coming across like a ghost to them, he's immediately giving them a command to help them. In verse 31, that word immediately is gonna be used again. There's an immediacy to the Lord's rescue. 
He wants to bring this this, uh, lesson home to them. And he does so with the two-edged sword command. And you need to hear this one. It's both take heart and don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Two sides of the same coin, two, two edges on the sword. Take heart means be courageous. It's the same command that, that um, the Lord gave Joshua when he took over for Moses. He gave it to Moses before. Be strong and of good courage. It's what Paul says to the Corinthians at the end of the book in verse or chapter 16. Uh, act like men. Be strong and act like men. There's not a lot of that talk out in our society today for men to be strong, to actually take courage. This isn't just, oh, have a, have a soft heart. I mean, I understand that humility, but there's a time when the pressure is on when you have to be strong, where you have to exert faith and say, I'm going to steal my nerves and I'm going to be strong in the Lord. Women too. We're to be strong and courageous disciples for the Lord. And that's what he's saying they need to do. They need to learn to respond this way under immense duress. So what does Peter do? Peter says, I'll take you up on that. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. You want me to be strong and courageous. You want me to exercise my faith. And he's probably standing on the edge of the boat saying, then command me to enjoin you in this miracle. Now, Peter is not being a skeptic of Jesus. I think he's showing a yielded submission to Jesus at this point, saying, you've commanded us to be strong. You've commanded us not to worry about the boat and the wind and the waves and you walking on the water. And so I'm going to be strong with you right now. I'm going to walk to you. That's what he's saying. I want to be strong in the Lord. And so Peter begins to walk out on the water. Because verse 29 says, Jesus understood Peter's heart and he said, come. Peter is summoned by the Lord. And the Lord, I don't think, would have summoned him if Peter was in sin. This is a mentor and a mentee. This is a coach and an athlete. This is a professor and a student. Let's put you out in the water. Let's put you out in a situation and challenge your faith so that you can grow. Come out to me and join with me in this miracle. Um, Peter is affirming Jesus' dominance over the creation. Peter is affirming the lordship of Christ over the natural realm. And he's saying, I'm going to affirm that by walking on the water out to you. It's a right motivation that Jesus is blessing. Peter's not tricking. He's not trying to use trickery or fake Jesus out. He's bidden to come and he's modeling fearless courage, exalting Christ, and he's acting as an example to the others in the boat. But as there is a good example of what you can learn to do, there's also a bad example of what what you can learn not to do. And Peter shows us that as well in verse 30. It says, um, you know, Jesus summoned Peter. So Peter got out of the boat, verse 29, walked on the water and came to Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to look around at the creation and he gets scared. You say, well, that's horrible. I mean, here Peter was doing great and then he falls down so quickly. But just miracle aside, isn't this the story of our lives? Jesus says, do something. You say, okay, I'm gonna obey that command. And, and, you know, let's try it this way. And you sense that you're supposed to do it that way. And you start walking out. And then you, you look around and you go, whoa, this is really scary. 
And I'm not trying to tell stories about myself or anything in a self-exalting way. I do play a sport that's called water polo, and it's, it's a scary sport, especially if you're not in shape for it, because you're in the water and you can't put your feet down. And so you're in the water, and you're basically working a mind-over-matter game with yourself where you're running out of oxygen and strength while you play, compete, and, and battle to try to get goals. Well, what I find is when I'm in the, the game and I'm out of breath or somebody's dunked me underwater or whatever and I come up, if I don't re-engage the game and think about the ball, think about my competitor, think about the strategy of what's going on, if I start to think about my own self, my own circumstances, my own problems and my own fears, I will run out of breath very, very quickly and want to get on the side and tap out. And instead of doing that, you have to keep your, your eyes fixed on what you're supposed to be fixed on. And that's what the Lord's lesson is here for Peter and for all of the disciples that are watching. They're all front row on that boat seeing what's going to happen because Peter starts to look at his circumstances and he begins to drown. And you know what that feels like. If you've ever been pushed off the side of the pool or you get out of breath and you're underwater or in the ocean or in a river and it's, it's a horrible experience. It's a horrible feeling to be out of breath and trying to get your head up above water. It's awful. And so... That's what Peter's example here is to us of what not to do, what not to do. Begin to look at your circumstances and begin to drown. He's beginning to be afraid again. But what he does is he prays in verse 30, the right prayer at the right moment that we should all pray, Lord, save me. Do you see that? He cried, Lord, save me. That's the point. If you boil everything down to one thing in this sermon, it's learning how to be in a place where your heart is really out here and you're saying the only means of my survival is Jesus. That's it. I think I was talking about it earlier. It's, it's a, a lack. It's, it's dismantling self-reliance within your life. It's dissolving self-reliance where you're thrown out into, you know, a place where you feel like you're going to free fall and you, you, you want to reach for worldly handholds to make you, you know, stay up. And you're trying to grab for things that are going to just fail you. You're grabbing for branches that are just going to crack instead of saying, I can't help myself, Lord, save me. You're in the posture of, please rescue me. That's where Jesus wants you to be. That's, that's courageous faith. It looks very, you know, sort of helpless. But when you are helpless with the Lord and he is your strength, then you can be courageous. That's why Peter was so strong later on. It's because he was learning this lesson now. Save me. We all in our, in our sin need to ask the Lord to save us from our sin. But in our sanctification, in our Christian growth, we have to say, Lord, save me. In verse 31, Jesus, here's that word again, immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt why did Jesus come so strong? Because I, I think this was a pretty strong sort of very direct means of communication. He's just diagnosing what went wrong. When you were drowning, you are showing, you're exposing to me that your faith is still little. And it was doubting. You were up. You were focused. You were being strong and courageous in faith. And then suddenly you are in a position of failing faith. 
I think Jesus did this to make an example out of Peter to all who were watching in the boat. He doesn't just want to strengthen Peter's faith. He wants to strengthen the whole little church's faith that's watching. You're exercising the little faith, small faith, and you're doubting. Don't do that. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a rebuke from a parent. It's a coach to, a, to an athlete. You have little faith right now. I'm just calling you out. He's doing it in love. He's speaking the truth in love. So what happened after that is everybody, not just Peter, but everybody gets the point. The point wasn't the miracle. The point was Jesus. The reason the miracle was there to show us Jesus, to show Jesus is worthy, of, worthy to be trusted. The boat's breaking apart, but he's bigger than the boat. The world is falling apart. He's dominant over the world. He's worthy of our trust. Exercise courageous faith. Strong rebuke would mean stronger faith. Okay, so he, what did Jesus do to mentor his mentees? He sent them out. He led by example, by praying for them. He allowed extreme circumstances to come upon them. He comes to their rescue. He seizes the opportunity to teach them what they needed to learn. And then he affirms their lesson being learned. That's letter F. He affirms their, their lesson being learned. Verse 32. It says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. They get in the boat. Who gets in the boat? Jesus and Peter get in the boat. They climb in, and as soon as they get in, all creation goes hush, just like when Jesus said, hush, be still, before out of the hole of the boat. Here, this second encounter, creation just, the music stops. That's incredible. That's as miraculous as Jesus walking on top of it for Jesus to say, okay, lesson learned, we're done. I mean, all night long, ah, it's crazy. This is never gonna end. Peter, ah, I'm drowning. We're in the boat, it's over. So let's not be too hard on Jesus for saying you exercised little faith, small faith here, and you were doubting. They get in the boat, everything stops. We're gonna be alive, we're living. And they're like, you are the son of God, which is Jesus most oft used title, which basically ties him as fully God and fully man on earth. That's what son of God means. I'm affirming your full divinity and your full humanity at the same time. You are the Daniel prophesied, Daniel 7 prophesied and predicted son of God in our boat. What do we do? Worship means proskuneo. It, or it's a, that's the Greek word for it. It means to bow face down. They were just on the ground. You are God. We are yielded. We are taking courage like this. This is our posture of courage. Not this, not this, this. This is the posture of courage. The storm was meant to strip away all other options, all other handholds. The miracle was meant to exalt the right and only option, which is Jesus. Fixed on Christ, everything ceased. If you look at John 6, 21, just as an additional angle on this, what happened is it says they were glad to take him, meaning Jesus, into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It's like the nightmare's over. We're down, we look up, the sea was calm, and oh, we're on the other side. We, Jesus just fast-forwarded them to the other coast, coast side. It's incredible. That's miraculous as well. What does all this mean for us? Simply this, 
be deliberate to go on retreat. Why? To be mentored by Jesus. Whatever hard is happening to you right now in your life and your circumstance, ask Jesus, what lesson are you trying to teach me? Where do I need to learn? How can I exercise this kind of worship and faith in this moment? And then how can I follow your example and find other people to teach this truth to? Because I don't want it just to be about me. I want it to be about everyone else that you're putting in the sphere of influence into my life that I need to give the truth to.